Welcome to Outside the Music Box. I'm Chloe Prendergast. And I'm Emma Williams. We're both violinists specialising in historical performance practice based in the Netherlands, and we're so glad you've joined us today. Each episode of this podcast explores a different piece of music through the eyes of a guest musician. Today's guest is our friend Dominic Giardino, who we both met, as you'll hear him say, while studying at the conservatory in The Hague. He chose to bring in Mozart's Requiem. From the beginning of the episode, you'll hear us talk about early music and historical performance practice. Basically, this means that we play on old instruments from the time the music was written, and we research the historical context of each piece to inform the way we interpret the music. Also, just a quick disclaimer, we're still learning how to use the internet, and in this episode, unfortunately, Emma's audio is not great. Sorry! But we think we fixed it for the future, so thanks for bearing with us while we figure this out. And don't worry about trying to remember the pieces and recordings we talk about. They are in the show notes, along with a link to a Spotify playlist. Thanks for joining us, and enjoy the Mozart Requiem. How's it going, y'all? It's been a hot second. <laughs> <laughs> Can you start by introducing yourself, Dom? Yeah, sure. My name is Dominic Giardino. I'm a historical clarinetist. Um, I know, of course, Emma and Chloe from our time studying together in The Hague. And now I live in Williamsburg, Virginia, where I'm both the operations manager for Three Notched Road, the Virginia Baroque Ensemble, and also a historical interpreter with the Colony Williamsburg Foundation. So a lot of my life these days is administrative and research-based, but um, still freelancing and, and playing and discovering lots and lots and lots of music that nobody ever listens to, maybe for a reason, but enjoying it, <laughs> enjoying it all the while. And you like researching, right? Oh, That's absolutely. Something that you have been wanting to do. Yeah, I mean, really, my position with Cloning Williamsburg at the moment is it's kind of a, a dream for where I am because there's so many resources affiliated with the organization, and I have a lot of time to really dive into some niche stuff that maybe if I were freelancing, you know, ninety-five percent of my time, I wouldn't have the opportunity to. So. It's um, especially with my interests, which is wind music of the 18th century and specifically military music of the 18th century. I'm kind of in a dream position right now. Definitely thankful to be where I am. Amazing. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so you have brought us today a very happy, happy, joy, joy piece, haven't you, Dom? <laughs> I have. Well, you know, the classical what period is, is just filled with fluff and happiness yeah. and delight. So I thought we'd talk a little bit about the Mozart Requiem, uh, one oh. of the lightest pieces of the repertoire. Um, I think there's a lot to talk about there. Uh, Can yeah. you start by talking about um, the first experience you had with this piece? Yeah, so this was actually one of the very first pieces that introduced me to classical music as classical music, if that makes sense. You know, I, I started, like, I think a lot of wind players in America do, just in band in school. And kind of my whole life throughout middle school, you know, my early uh or my preteen and teenage years were basically all just about band music. And to, to an extent, 
that still lives with me today. But my first sort of deep dive into classical music started with the Mozart Requiem, really initiated <laughs> probably by the movie Amadeus, by the film Amadeus, oh. um, because that, of course, is one of the big you know subjects or themes throughout that film. Um, so I started a really profound obsession with um, Neville Mariner and the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, which then somehow brought me into the world of historical performance without me knowing it, because suddenly I was listening to recordings of Franz Bruggen without knowing who Franz Bruggen was or what Franz Bruggen was doing. Um, and just tell everybody who Franz Bruchen is. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so Franz Bruchen, uh, of course, is the very, 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 very famous Dutch recorder player, pioneer, one of sort of the founding fathers of early music and uh, notable for uh, sort of the world that I live in now. He's the founder of the orchestra of the 18th century. So really one of the first pioneers to do some deep dives into late 18th century, early 19th century music. Um, you know, I had the privilege to study with uh, Eric Hoprich, who is um, one of the founding members of that organization as well. And, you know, really just a titan of, of the repertoire that I live in all the time. So how old were you when you first fell in love with this piece? It must have been, I guess I was probably 13 or 14 when I first became aware of it. Because it was really, it was the Mozart Requiem and Beethoven 6. Those were like the two two old pieces with strings that I would listen to. Otherwise, I didn't listen to basically <laughs> anything with strings. And before I went to, you know, before I went to conservatory, um, I, you know, I'd never even played with string players. So really... You know, wow. that's my whole perspective on, on orchestra and really what the rest of the world sees as very normal was introduced to me in this very irregular piece of music because the Mozart Requiem is not for a symphony orchestra. It's for, you know, first of all, choir soloists, but then strings, basset horn, not clarinet, yeah. uh, trombones, not exactly typical of 18th century uh, secular music. No oboes, yeah. no flutes, no horns. Um, I mean, I really, I think it kind of, <laughs> in some way, it really um, skewed my vision or maybe not skewed, but it, I just didn't come into it with maybe the regular Haydn orchestra um, mindset, right? I, I just didn't necessarily have that as my background. Yeah. So going back to Amadeus, the movie, um, this is a bit controversial, but when I watched it, I got about halfway through and turned it off and couldn't stand it. So, please. Oh. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Just because of how, like, hokey it is? Or... I don't know. I think I was watching it with another friend who's very sarcastic, and we were about 17 or something, and... We just maybe we were not in the right mood for it, or we were too up ourselves thinking that we knew everything, and it just like yeah wasn't a good time, and yeah. we just turned it off halfway through. We were just like this is bullshit, but um you know maybe I should go back and watch it properly again, and maybe I'll be you right. haven't no nah. you haven't watched it nah. oh my god <laughs> why <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> just how many years has it been? Just go back and watch it. And you have to watch the director's cut. I really, I'm a firm believer oh, really? that you have to watch a director's cut. Yeah, because there's... Oh, interesting. The, I don't think everything is thoroughly explained without some critical scenes, but... Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, how do you feel about the movie? Hmm. Oh, I um, love it. 
I mean, I, I'm a hundred percent on board with the fact that you have to be in the right mood because I've turned down, right. you know, the movie more times and I've said yes to it because you really do yeah. have to commit to sitting there for like two hours and 45 minutes or whatever it is. And, you know, yeah. the laugh can be kind of crazy after a while. <laughs> but, mm, yeah, you know, I think that might have been the clinching point <laughs> for me. Yeah. I mean, I think like the real value of it, though, and maybe, you know, why it was so attractive to me when I ended up seeing it um, when I was, I don't know, probably 13 or 14, was it's just so goofy, right? I mean, like it, it really throws like the idea of the classical music world being so snobby and, you know, highfalutin and, and high nose kind of on its head. And it, and it really challenges yeah, yeah. this theme throughout the movie. And that's, yeah. I've always thought that the only reason that we should be playing these silly instruments, especially, you know, wind instruments where you're literally just blowing into a tube of wood, you know, it, it has to be fun, right? I mean, it, it, it's it's not really lofty business. Um, and there's certainly lofty themes that can come from it. But um, I, don't, I just always had a, a, a huge respect and admiration for the tone of the film throughout. Um, and then, of course, it does yeah. get, you know, very serious and very dark towards the end. Yeah. But And it's not, I mean, of course, it's not everything is entirely historically accurate in that film. Oh, God, no. We all know that that's not true. However, like the way in which they decided to portray Mozart is like there is truth there in his silliness. Like we have a letter from him. Maybe we'll insert a little bit of mm. this letter somewhere around here where he talks um, in a letter about farts for like just a really long not time. One, yeah. Not one letter. I mean, there's... Not just one letter, right? Yeah, it's so many. And for your enjoyment, here's an excerpt of a letter Mozart wrote to his mother on the 31st of January, 1778. We both have managed to avoid it. Gas builds up and others void it. Both before and after meals when they let rip with farts whose noise I'd say would wake the dead. But yesterday, the queen of farts was here to stay with farts as sweet as honey, but a voice as hoarse as any chestnut. We've been away for seven nights, and in that time shat many shites. Herr Wendling will be cross, his four quartets are not yet in full score. But once I'm back across the Rhine, I'll knuckle down, step into line, and write his works, for I don't fancy being called an idle Nancy. Yeah, th that's actually... Anybody who's really looking for a doozy should just get some translated, or, you know, if you read German non-translated letters, and just... <laughs> them because it read they read like a novel in many ways a lot, yeah. a lot of these publications uh, put them together really nicely um yeah. but they're really gross like some of our really like really nasty yeah. like talking about i mean forgive me for saying this but talking about like pooping on his cousin's face it's just like very there's like some very <laughs> weird stuff in there well and, yeah. and i think like going back to sort of the authenticity of the movie amadeus i mean what when you dive sort of into because it's adapted from the peter schaefer play and mm, the Peter yeah. Schaefer play is adapted actually from a Rimsky-Korsakov opera from the yeah. 1870s, yeah. I think. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Salieri and, and Mozart or something, Salieri and Amadeus. And so it's it's it actually kind of plays into this whole Requiem thing that like the whole life of Mozart is a legend, right? I mean, mm -hmm. he's he became this legendary figure as a result of this. I mean, it's not really even a mysterious death, right? He caught a cold and he died which you know a billion people have done so yeah. uh, <laughs> but you know it, it's it's just what's cool about Amadeus is if you do dive into it right it, it gives you actually a perspective into 19th century history that then gives you I think a perspective onto the 18th century reality 
um, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I would love to go back to, so you first heard this, it came from seeing this movie, you were like 13 or 14. You sort of got, you got obsessed with this and started listening to it all the time. Yeah, it was just one of these things. I, I never, you know, I didn't listen to a lot of music, actually, um, just in general. I wasn't like a music consumer. And actually, to this day, it's still something that I really, you know, I, I have to sit down and decide that I'm going to listen to a piece of music. You know, I mm-hmm. don't really like to just kind of have things going on in the background. But this was really the first time that I wanted to pay a lot of attention to, to what was going on um, musically, to what was going on sort of in, in the sound world of that piece. And it just, it, it's the Neville Mariner recording probably lived with me for about, I don't know, probably five or six years until I got introduced uh, more, you know, formally to the historical performance world. And then really it, it probably, I think I sent you guys the Tador Karenzi's recording that kind of changed the game for me in a lot of ways, Um, just kind of with how I began listening to the piece of music. Would you listen like in the car, in your room? Like where were you, where were you listening to this when you were a teenager? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Making your family listen with you? No, always with headphones usually, Uh, unless unless I was driving around, in which case I would have the windows rolled down and it just blaring (laughs) because, you know, I loved making people uncomfortable with that sort of thing, especially if I had passengers in the car. It's really, really great to have the curie go as you're driving down the sunny streets of Key West and there are chickens around and forests all over the place. And there's this really dark, terrifying music coming out of a car. It, it made for a good scene, I think. Either that or I just look like a complete nerd, which is probably the reality. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or both. Yeah. Yeah. yeah both. Know, it's, it's still something. I'll still be rolling into work every, you know, now and then with Mozart Requiem blaring from my windows. But this was also, I mean, I don't know if, you know, y'all can relate to this, but when I really, you know, in secondary school and in high school, high school, secondary school, right? I don't know. I don't know how to translate these things. In high school, uh, (laughs) you know, I I really started to listen to music to like focus on work. And so actually that's when I sort of transitioned to, I'd either be listening to the Mozart Requiem or Appalachian Spring by Aaron Copeland. Um, And I think like the benefit to both of these pieces is there's a real arc to them, right? It's not like you're listening to little fragmented bits and pieces, which is also kind of a fun um, you know, it just kind of pops into my head now, but so much of the music that I deal with now are, you know, things that last for maybe five minutes, right? Mm-hmm. As individual movements, whereas the pieces that really introduced me to this world are huge. I mean, really just sublime <laughs> yeah. sort of sort of pieces that are meant to maybe transport you instead of distract you, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. And what better piece than the Requiem to transport you? I mean, it's... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. the point. To yeah. hell and back. Yeah. It's yeah. really amazing. Or to hell and not back. I don't know. <laughs> uh, how does it end, right? Like, mm. in this yeah. case? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's... The whole thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a whole other thing. I mean, that's... Yeah. The mystery of the Requiem itself, the legend of the Requiem. Actually, sort of in preparation for this, I was reading some some like articles from the 19th century um, telling the story of the Mozart oh. Requiem, right? And it in itself, it kind of falls into this 
sort of trap of romanticism that it's this dark piece of music, right? It's this very lofty sort of heavy piece of music that's actually not really representative of probably the majority of Mozart's output. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and, yeah. And, and yet it's by far, probably I would venture to say the most popular piece of music that he ever wrote and he didn't even write the whole thing. So <laughs> yeah. it, it, it just like falls into this sort of notion that there's a great romantic hero who dies and from his death comes this amazing um, sublime piece of music. Yeah so what are your thoughts about the the controversy of the story of, of the Requiem or the myths of the Requiem? It, you know I think like the controversy around the piece is widely irrelevant. I mean, it, that's kind of just my, my personal opinion about 18th yeah. century, about really all music in general, is that the, the music exists. And sometimes it's best not to question its origin, or, or maybe sometimes it's even irrelevant to question its origin. With, with the case of, of the Mozart Requiem, I mean, we know pretty definitively that Mozart dies of some type of cold. Uh, yeah. Then his widow, Constanza, uh, Mozart, nay Weber, gives the piece to both um, Anton Eibler, I want to say, Anton Eibler yeah. and Franz Xavier Sussmeier. Yeah. Eibler writes a little bit of it. Sussmeier is given the credit for finishing most of it. Yeah. And by the mid-19th century, actually, this is pretty widely acknowledged that that's how the piece got finished, that Sussmeier mm -hmm. ended up, you know, filling in a lot of the orchestration and writing the last few movements. Um, but really, yeah. with with like the mystery of it all, the thing that uh, the more important lesson, I think, is that it doesn't, you know, the origin of music itself isn't necessarily sacred. Uh, you know, so much music is ultimately owned by those who play it. That's sort of just the end game. I mean, music is owned by the people who are delivering it. Uh, you know, we are the arbiters of these little black dots on the page. Yeah. So, yep. you know, I, I personally am not a big fan of sort of the fetishism, fetishization of repertoires, right? Uh, yeah. A lot of the, the music that I listen to or am really, really interested in is music that, ha for the most part, really even hasn't been recorded. Um, so mm -hmm. the, the bigger lesson is, or the, maybe the question to ask is, are what are the reasons we're obsessed with the Mozart Requiem? Is it is it, are yeah. we falling into that 19th century trap of, ooh, it's glorious, it's mysterious, it's dark and it's romantic. And what what is the truth behind the paper? Or can we just acknowledge it as just really well done uh, <laughs> writing? I mean, it, it's really well done composition on the part of oh, obviously Mozart and yeah. Sussmeier. Yeah. So. I think the fact that it's so well written and it's such an amazing piece of music has meant that the controversy and the gossiping and the talk about it has kept going. Definitely, it's got that sort of that sexy appeal about it, right? Yeah. That it's it's there's so much mystery that that's probably I think what has supported it for so long. Mm. Um, yeah, maybe though you fell in love with it for reasons that seem to be different than the mystery surrounding it. Well, but my introduction to it was in in this Amadeus, Amadeus. world, right? So <laughs> yeah. like Amadeus itself is yeah. meant to be a huge Maybe. melodrama that yeah. plays off the fact that Salieri killed Mozart. And that in yeah, itself, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I didn't buy it, but it gave me like a leaping board to be like, okay, well, first of all, that's nonsense, but let's actually try to, <laughs> to get into it. I mean, I probably wouldn't yeah. have had the same exposure if I went to a classical music concert, you know, if I went to an orchestra concert and I didn't have a program and I was forced to sit in front of the Mozart Requiem, I 
can honestly say I have very serious doubts that 13-year-old Dominic would be like as enthusiastic about it today as he was, mm. you know, without that melodramatic introduction. Yeah. Um, so theater has its place. And, and the theater yeah. Behind, yeah. behind the music, the real life theater. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, of course. The other thing I find super interesting um, about the history of it also is that just in the very brief research that we did before this, um, was that apparently Constanza had to lie and say that Mozart had finished it before he died so that she could get mm-hmm. the um, you know commission money, which also I'm just like, oh, thank God, like, good on you, girl, for, like, just sticking up because, like, you're <laughs> tough. If your husband yeah. is the breadwinner at the end of the, you know, 18th century has died and you were counting on that money that he was going to be earning, of course I would yeah. be like, yep, it's all done, he did it, yep. Get you the money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. um, okay, now we're going back to your experience with this piece again. Um, <laughs> so then what happened? After you were in high school, then what's the next time you really... Have you played it ever? What what happened? Yeah, next? so I, I've played the piece um, three times to three different groups. Uh, I didn't play it at all in my undergrad. That was one one of the obstacles is it has basset horns, not clarinets. Uh, and also, as I said earlier, it's not maybe the most representative piece of music for a symphony orchestra. So for a school, it's not a great project. And I went to, you know, yeah. uh, I, I went to a great school that did a lot of diverse programs. But, you know, it's not going to include the, you know, saxophone players, oboe players, you know, horn players, etc. that we had sort of on deck. So it wasn't until 2016, which was my last year of undergrad, um, that I got a email from another historical clarinetist here in America, Thomas Carroll, who needed a sub actually for a concert uh, that I guess was in March of 2016 with the Arcadia players, which is, oh, yeah. yeah. So Ian Watson is the conductor of that group. And fun fact, Ian Watson is actually in the movie Amadeus as a forte pianist. So I got a call. I didn't have an instrument. I had only purchased my first historical, well, my first 18th century clarinet. I'd been playing 19th century clarinets for a few years uh, before this, but I, I didn't have the proper instrument. Thomas said he would lend me the instrument. So I go to Boston, I pick up this instrument. Now I have to learn the Bassett horn in a month and play in this crazy concert. It, it's still today, probably the craziest concert I've ever played because it was just a marathon. It was one day of rehearsing and that night was the concert. And it wasn't just the Mozart Requiem. <laughs> it was also the 39th Symphony by Mozart. And so we're talking about we're talking about orchestration changes, we're talking about you have to have the choir and the soloists ready to go and the orchestra was really small um, and I think it was I mean, I think it was pretty stressful for everybody, <laughs> um, but I, rem- I I have pleasant like memories of the performance itself, and that that was actually my first professional gig on historical instruments. That was the first time I was wow. able to like walk away with a paycheck for playing an 18th century clarinet, which was wow. a really cool experience. Wow. Um, and getting to yeah. be sort of around the players that I was, it was yeah. really nuts. This just sounds very classic, Ian. I play for the Connecticut Early Music Festival every Same year. Same sort of deal, Ian, right? Yeah, Ian yeah. Watson also directs. And it's there's always one day of rehearsal for an enormous program and it's then crazy. the concert. And it's pretty crazy. And it's also like it gives a particular kind of excitement to the concert. Yeah. Because 
everyone is really on their toes. Yeah. Oh, that's for sure. Because you feel like you're still discovering the music as you're playing the concert. To well, some, it, you know, and it's not easy music. I mean, for me, like no. <laughs> diving into that situation, you can't hear ninety-five percent of the what the Bassett Horn is doing. It's really not fair. And actually, it gives me oh a great perspective into maybe the world that you guys more regularly live in with early eighteenth-century sacred music. But there's a lot mm -hmm. of like voice doubling. But the the Bassett Horn is constantly doubling the voices depending you know you know alto or or tenor i believe depending on which voice you're you're playing and you have these crazy um you know these fugue lines with all of these 16th notes that don't really lie very naturally on the instrument itself just for some context this movement is a fugue which means that each part has the same material overlapping and interacting with each other kind of like a puzzle in this next excerpt, you can hear first the basses introducing the theme, and then the altos and basset horn answering with a counter theme. The altos have fast-moving 16th notes, which is super hard on the basset horn, as you just heard Dominic say. Um, and so it it was really one of these trial by fire situations. And as far as I recall, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, I didn't like explode on stage, right? <laughs> you know, I was able to, able to yeah. pull together. Um, but, you know, like you're saying, it really gave this energy to this type of performance that you're learning yeah. an hour, 50 minute to an hour long piece of music together in one day. And by the way, there's this, you know, 25 minute symphony that you're also playing that also has huge exposed clarinet parts. So it was, it was cool. I've, I, I would love to play that program again, maybe with a few more days uh, <laughs> preparation. And how different is it, is the basset horn from the clarinet? How big of a difference was it for you to learn that instrument? You know, the biggest difference is um, with the reeds and with the mouthpiece. But that's kind of an obstacle that historical clarinet players deal with on a regular basis anyway, because, you know, in the modern clarinet world, you can have your B-flat clarinet and A clarinet. You're using the same mouthpiece. You're using the same reeds. That's fine. Even, you know, we have standardized equipment for the modern instruments. For the historical instruments, you're basically using a different mouthpiece for every instrument, maybe a same mouthpiece for one or two instruments if you find something that works. But because every instrument is handmade and every instrument behaves very differently, you need equipment that is really specifically designed or at least nurtured to a specific uh, clarinet. So with the with the basset horn, it's the technique itself isn't different because the fingering systems are the same. It's basically just a really weird looking clarinet that is actually, you know, it's a great conversation starter uh, <laughs> if you're new to an orchestra or don't know anybody to be holding this weird kind of boomerangy looking uh, <laughs> instrument. But it, it, the going back and forth between playing on my clarinet mouthpiece and clarinet reeds and then the basset horn mouthpiece and the basset horn reeds, that was where the real challenge comes in. And also because there are so many more tenons, there are so many more points where the air can escape on a basset horn, mm. uh, you need to make sure that there's, everything is sealed properly. Because, I mean, this is mm. maybe to a certain extent, you know, you relate to this with, you know, seals breaking on, on string instruments. But if, if, a, if a seal breaks on, on a wind instrument and not breaks like cracks but if there's any one little place where air is escaping 
you can get some of the most horrible squeaking sounds you'd ever hear. I mean, it's why we laugh at clarinet players, right? It's because you yeah. get these crazy yeah. like, apocalyptic squeaks in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, that's caused by a lot of things. But in the basset horn, my personal belief is a lot of that is caused by leaking air. I mean, you really have to have, um, you have to make sure you got good seals. Yeah, can't have any more of that leaking air. <laughs> yeah, no. I already have a lot of air leaking constantly. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> um, so going back to the piece and less about leaking air, um, do you have a favorite part of the, the Requiem? Um, yeah, I mean, I quite stereotypically like the first half the best. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the record, the record is probably my favorite movement, uh, just because it opens with the glorious Bassett Horn duo that is, oh. I think, unmatched. I mean, it really, it's really, really neat. And I think, you know, it's, it's writing that anybody could appreciate. And it really emphasizes the vocal quality of these instruments. It's, it's when you can, I think, really first hear a Bassett horn and maybe not something that sounds clarinet adjacent. Uh, but otherwise, you know, the really metal parts, which I like the Kyrie and the DSE Ray. Uh, <laughs> I've yeah. been singing a lot of the Confutatis lately, just walking oh. around, which has been, um, you know, maybe not the most welcome thing around the apartment. <laughs> <laughs> but that's also my favorite. So, yeah. Oh, the Confutatis? Yeah. Oh, so I love good. it. Yeah. And why is it your favorite, guys? Oh, so intense. <laughs> yeah. It's and the, like storm and drang and the like super super intense and then just goes like straight to the the choir sort of up in the heavens and yeah it's <laughs> it's this juxtaposition right it's like yeah. it's 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 literally heaven and hell back and forth it's yeah. so cool. What about you, Chloe? What's your favorite? My favorite is the beginning, I think. Ah, uh, yeah, that's the way that you like that he sets up this monumental work is just. I find that fascinating. I find the fa it fascinating with any large work, how that gets set up. Mm. Well, it's almost like it's it's kind of it's not simple, but it, it's sort of unsuspecting, right? I mean, there's yeah. like this yeah. weird, this is like boom, dum. Ah, you know, with these layered bassoon and yep. and basset horns, yep. and the bass is so simple. It's mm -hmm. really, yeah, you don't know what you're getting. I think with that opening, you just don't know what to expect. Yeah, but yeah. you know it's going to be something yeah. big, or it's like something's going to happen that you don't know yet. It's sort of like right, a bit it's foreboding, but yeah. like what? <laughs> Where is it? There's expectation. Yeah, yeah, there's expectation in it for sure. Yeah but you're you're not sure what that expectation is right and then that like and then when the ds Irae comes like the first time i got introduced to this piece was i sang it in high school choir Ooh. and my high school choir was not good <laughs> um by any means <laughs> but it was 
and it was not always a super fun class either, but I remember just like totally falling in love with this piece, mm. singing it in high school and being like, oh, this feels like real music. And not yep. that I hadn't played other real music or whatever, but there was that experience of being in high school and being part of something that felt like something way bigger than myself and way bigger than us. And that the music was so good that our really bad rendition of it didn't matter. Yeah, yeah well, I think it's perfect music for a high schooler, honestly. I mean, it's so yeah. angsty. It's so angsty. Yeah. And like just <laughs> so to, I think, like yeah. what, what we think is going on in our heads during that period of our life, right? <laughs> or what we think is going on in the world yeah. uh, around yeah. us. But yeah, actually now now I'm remembering, I, I sing the Lacrimosa in, in high school choir as well. And I had very okay. different feelings. You know, it's, it's I think, yeah. important with these larger pieces of music, if you can be in a choir and experience them, I think that adds like a whole different element to it. Um, you yeah. know, playing a wind instrument or playing a string instrument, you're still dealing with like this artif artificial, you know, forgive the simplicity of it, but artificial channel that's delivering the sound. Whereas when you're mm. in the choir, like you have this intimate experience where the music is like literally coming from your body. Like there's no other agent but you. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I can definitely see how you would have that experience, Chloe. I mean, just being a part of the sublime experience of the yeah, Ray yeah. especially. Yeah, and I remember getting going from the Curie to the DSA Ray and just being like, yes, this is it. <laughs> Did you guys sing the whole thing? Yeah. <laughs> That's a doozy. I mean, we didn't sing any of the solo. Like, I think maybe one kid sang like one solo thing. I think we were asked if anybody wanted solos. I definitely did not want a solo. And <laughs> we just sang the the choruses. But still, that's like that's, that's a, a lot. lot of music. Mm. And it's yeah. a lot of a lot of counting. Yeah. Well, maybe not for the choir, but that's that's probably the biggest challenge <laughs> yeah. that I found with the Mozart Requiem is it's such a long haul. There's so and it, you're not playing all the time, and some mm -hmm. movements you're just like not even involved in at all. Um, this is coming from the basset horn player. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but <laughs> you know, players, we literally play every second of every piece. Well, that's I'm a little bit envious of that, right? Is that you're just like locked, yeah. loaded, you're like locked in there. But usually when I'm yeah. counting a rest, if I don't come in after that rest, well, then we've missed something yeah. probably pretty important, right? We've like, <laughs> we've yeah. missed something that's probably, probably should be heard. Uh, yeah. So that's, yeah, probably if I had to think of like the biggest challenge with that piece is like staying locked in like for mm, all 50 minutes of it. Cause it's really easy. Especially there's so much repeated material if you're just playing the regular Sussmeyer version, which everybody does. There's so much repeated material in the second half that might change by like half a measure or something. You know, there's little tiny minute mm -hmm. changes that you really have to be keyed into. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Talking of like how monumental the piece is and it's quite a long piece, around like 50 minutes. For someone who hasn't heard it before or has only heard bits of it, you know, in movies or whatever, because it's like in every second movie there is. Um, and commercials. Would you <laughs> and commercials? Yeah. Um, do you have advice for someone who like would want to sort of 
you know, dip their toes into the requiem and like, how would you suggest they, they kind of get to know it? You know, there are a number of live recordings on uh, YouTube that I think are really worth sort of diving into. But if, if you don't want to sit down and take a 50 minute bite mm-hmm. <laughs> of the Requiem, I think, you know, one of the best things that you can do for yourself is find one of those days where you're maybe you don't have the highest energy that you could have. Maybe it's not the sunniest day, mm-hmm. put on a nice pair of headphones or turn on some nice speakers and just listen to the first, you know, even the first five to 10 minutes, I think will really help give people a perspective of the bigger piece of music. I really don't like when people just dive right into the Lacrimosa because I the Lacrimosa is yeah. great on its own, but I don't think it's like super representative of the piece of music as a whole. And I think you really do need to experience the soloists, the choir and the orchestra. And if there's one thing that Mozart does really well with that introduction uh, is really introduce all of the different players in a real tiered way. I mean, it's literally, you get to hear one voice at a time as they enter. Uh, So I really think diving right from the very beginning, maybe through the Curie, maybe DSE Ray, if you're feeling then, you know, like you want to do some, you know, what is that head banging or whatever. So if you cool. want to experience Chloe's teenage angst. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but then like another thing is just like choosing a recording, right? I mean, everyone is so different yeah. in, mm-hmm. in what they, they like to hear and what they like to listen to. And I've gone back and listened. I don't listen to a lot of the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields anymore because I had, you know, like this personal um, revelation when I was watching the movie Amadeus for probably the 400th time that I'm looking at instruments <laughs> that are not actually being played, right? You're looking at like the historical oh, yeah. instruments and it's, you know, exactly. It's like modern instruments in the background. And there was something about it that it, I think it kind of broke me a little bit. FYI, what Dominic means here is that having some of the movie's music recorded on modern day instruments rather than instruments from Mozart's time is like seeing an iPhone in a movie set in the 1800s. Still really, really, really fantastic. But the Theodore Carenzi's, if you're maybe someone who's looking for like some real edge, I mean, yeah. anything that Theodore Carenzi's and Musica Eterna puts out is like really mm. crazy and really rhythmic and really edgy. And mm. maybe, you know, I, th- I know it has a bit of controversy sort of in the larger historical performance world. I think it's, it's you either love it or you hate it. But it's definitely engaging. So if, I think it's the Theodore Carenzi's is a great recording to sort of introduce you to the piece. And if you're maybe if you're looking for something that's maybe a little bit more sublime or maybe a little bit more broad, then there are a million other recordings. It's one piece that has probably been recorded maybe, you know, I shouldn't say more than any other piece, but it's definitely up there. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's really true. Um, and you also sent us a recording to a 1937 version. Yeah, the Bruno Valda. It's really cool. It's really big. And actually, there's some things in there that you wouldn't expect from like a recording from the 1930s. Um, like there are some really, like what? like some really fast tempo, like there's okay, they're really broad, slow tempos, right? But they're juxtaposed. Yes with um, really, really bright tempos that are actually at some points faster than what Carenzi's does. What I really love about that recording, though, is, is probably what I just said, you know, these these real yeah. juxtapositions of how, how broad something can be, but then how edgy it can be. And also, like, the singing is just amazing, and it's just a totally different way of singing to how people sing so now. So expressive. Just... Yeah.
we're dealing with a lot of different things. First of all, it's a live recording. It's not a studio recording, if I recall yeah. correctly. So you're just, I think you're right. You're just in the moment. You're just playing for the sake of, you know, being heard at that specific time. And I mean, of course, also the thing about live recordings is that then there's the experience of the audience being there. And man, as a performer, like it really changes things if mm-hmm. you have an audience listening to you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we do need to sort of start wrapping this up <laughs> um, as amazing as it is to just continue to talk to you for no, this is super fun we have one question we want to end with but before that I just want to make sure that there's nothing else that you want to talk about with this piece I mean I, probably the only other thing that kind of goes along with the themes that we've already been talking about is don't assume that the Mozart Requiem you're listening to is the only Mozart Requiem that exists. Um, Mm -hmm. There are all sorts of reconstructions and composers have revisited this piece, particularly in the 20th century and even in the 21st century to, to try to experiment with, you know, how they can have maybe a collaborative ownership with Mozart himself. The last time I played this piece was in Basel in 2018 um, with the uh, Capricornus consort Basel and Florian Kramer, and we did a reconstruction by a French composer whose name I did have, <laughs> Dutron. <laughs> Dutron is, a, is his last name, Pierre-Henri <laughs> Dutron. Um, and it was amazing to, to actually like dive into, from a performance perspective, a different a different piece than mm. I'd heard before. And actually, mm. it made me challenge the way that I think about this music. But I would definitely encourage you to, or anybody who's listening out there, to like not fall into the trap of just listening to the Susmaya reconstruction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So final question. Um, what piece from another instrument are you jealous of? Oh, geez. Oh no, this is a this is a big one. Um, you know, it, it, I guess maybe like the quickest thing that comes to mind is Rameau, and I really really love Rameau. Rameau actually might be my favorite composer, and it sort of breaks my yeah. heart that there's only I think one or two operas that actually include clarinets at all. And of course, the Baroque clarinets, so they're more like trumpet parts anyway, which is not you know my super interest um so i i've always listened to those recordings or listened to those performances with a great deal of envy for the bassoon players and Mm -hmm. the oboe players i mean if i if i could go back in time and maybe i mean i love being a clarinet player and i think that you know we need to exist i suppose but if i if if i could if i could go back and if someone said you would get to play rameau's music if you played the oboe or you played the bassoon probably the bassoon i don't want to do with oboe reed but um you know <laughs> i would probably take that i would take that so i yeah, yeah i mean yeah. i adore Rameau. yeah i adore Rameau as well and um i'm also even jealous of the bassoon parts in Rameau. like so, i have great music as a violinist in Rameau, and i'm sure i still like yeah. yeah i love those bassoon parts yeah <laughs> Oh man, now this is like a it's like opening up a whole other like explosion in my brain of, of things we could talk about. But but another another time. Another time. Perhaps. Another time. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, it was so great having you, Dom. Thank well, you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is like this was super fun.
much for tuning into Outside the Music Box. We hope you enjoyed exploring the Mozart Requiem with us. If so, please rate and review this podcast. It really makes a difference in the algorithm and helps our visibility. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any questions or want to share music that you love, you can write to us at concerts.musicbox at gmail.com or on Facebook and Instagram at musicboxconcerts. In the show notes, we've included links to two Spotify playlists, one for the main pieces we discuss and another for the other pieces we chat about. However, we really encourage you to purchase music in order to support the artists. The best way to do this is usually through the websites of the artists themselves. See you next time outside the music box. Thank you.